Hi, and welcome to Let's Get Clinical, tips from the CRA Helper. Here is your host, Elizabeth Waddell. Hi, Elizabeth here, and welcome to Episode 9, where I will continue to discuss common audit findings. This week, I want to focus on issues in relation to adverse event review and reporting. And I apologize in advance, I'm having issues with my sinuses, so I may sound nasally or congested at times, but hopefully my sinuses won't be an issue. (laughs) Okay, so let's go ahead and jump in. So for those of you that maybe are newer to the clinical research industry, an AE is any untoward medical occurrence in a subject during a clinical trial. And this could include any new sign or symptom, any new condition, or worsening of a condition from baseline. And it does not necessarily have to have a causal relationship with study drug or any treatment in the study. It's so important that you understand this because I have had a research naive site that did not record like a cold or a sinus infection as an AE, for example, because they thought, well, it didn't have anything to do with the study drug. They were thinking of AEs kind of from a perspective of if they felt it was like a side effect or due to study drug. And I about fell out, but I was like, so I had to actually educate them on what an adverse event is and that anything, anything at all, even poison ivy that does not have anything to do with study drug would be captured as an AE. So it's very important. And the study protocol is also going to outline what's to be captured as an AE as well, as well as AEs of special interest. So depending on the study, the condition under study, there may be certain AEs of special interest that will require a certain type of reporting and certain timeline that those are to be reported by. So in addition to regulations and ICHGCP guidelines, your protocol is going to be very detailed as far as what's to be captured as an AE as well. So some may wonder, what exactly do I mean when I say worsening from baseline? So when a subject comes in, they consent for a study, that's their baseline. They come in, they screen, usually the medical history, concomitant medications, things like that are recorded for a patient. So when they come in and sign that consent, that is the baseline. So let me give an example. Say a subject has a medical history of migraines or intermittent migraines when they come into the study. So they sign consent and one of their medical history conditions are history of migraines. And during the study, their migraines increase in intensity or maybe they're having more than normal. This would be an AE. And usually in studies, the CRF completion guidelines will usually direct sites to record the AE like worsening of migraines or worsening of intermittent migraines. That way, it's very evident to data management that an AE did occur. Because if not, if they just see migraine in medical history, migraine and as an AE, they'll query for the sites to confirm and clarify that an AE did occur. So in that case, usually at the SIV, when I'm discussing EDC and data entry and, and CRF completion guidelines, I go over that. And on the flip side, you may notice when reviewing the source that at the next study visit, the subject reported taking Excedrin migraine, which you notice is a new medication. So you just would want to confirm with the site, was there any change since baseline or was this for their regular medical history of migraine? So usually in that case, if they said there was no change in baseline, then um, they would go ahead and document that in the source. That way, somebody else coming in will know it's already been addressed and it was already confirmed that it was not an AE. It was due to their regular medical history of migraines and nothing changed since baseline. So anytime I see 
an increase in dosage or a new medication written, I always confirm why. So you just want to always follow up with that. And sometimes you may find out that something did worsen and that's why they've increased a dose or changed a medication. Or you may find out it's due to insurance reasons and maybe that's why they had to change to a different medication. So if that happens, I just make sure that the site documents that clearly in the source. That way it's evident to anyone else reviewing the source, even an auditor, anything like that. So like I mentioned, the protocol is going to specify in addition what is to be captured as an AE, for example, depending on the condition under study. I was on an RA study, rheumatoid arthritis, and it's really sad because in that particular disease, it does progress over time and patients do worsen when it comes to the rheumatoid arthritis. So the protocol, because that was the nature of the disease under study, the protocol stated that any change that was due to a normal progression of RA was not an AE. So it was very important as a monitor that when I would see something in the source that was maybe a new symptom that the patient reported per se, I wanted to confirm with a medically qualified PI or delegated medically qualified sub-I if this new symptom was due to a normal progression or not, and to ensure it was documented appropriately in the source. So if I did see that new sign or symptom, and it seems like this would be due to the RA, but I'm not a doctor, so I needed to confirm, and it needs to be very clearly documented in the source. So when that would happen, the PI or sub-I would document this was due to a natural progression of the RA. And it's so awesome when you get these amazing coordinators, they get used to you asking this as a monitor, and they will automatically go ahead and have the PI or sub-I assess this, and it's already documented there for you when you come in for a monitoring visit. So I love it, because that's one less thing I have to query on or ask for. So it's awesome. The protocol should also specify the time period or the time frame that AEs and SAEs are to be captured, when they're to start, when they're to finish. And usually the the starting point on most studies that I've been on that AEs and SAEs are captured is the minute they sign informed consent. So once that informed consent signed, they are to start capturing adverse events or serious adverse events. And it's hard sometimes for sites because they're like, but they haven't even taken study drug yet, you know, and it's like, I know, but... And and it's hard for them to understand because if they sign consent, they walk outside and God forbid get hit by a bus, those SAEs and AEs would still have to be recorded because they consented for the study. And that's what the starting time point is to capture AEs and SAEs. So it's very important that sites understand the safety reporting requirements and timelines required for a study. Another example of the protocol specifying what is to be captured as AEs, usually it'll reference vital sign changes, labs, ECGs, physical exams. It'll usually reference changes to those. So sometimes it'll make note that a clinically significant change in the lab or ECG results or vital signs, for example, that they're to be captured as AEs rather than every little change that has no significance. So for example, blood pressure results, they're not going to be the exact act same at every single visit, but they could still be within normal range. So for example, you may have 120 over 80 at this visit, 122 over 83 at another visit. So by the definition of an AE, you're like, well, the numbers, the systolic and the diastolic blood pressure, the numbers did increase. So is it an AE? But it could still be within normal range. It may not be clinically significant. So in order to help alleviate this issue, most protocols will state that unless it's a clinically significant change in the vital signs or lab results or ECG results or even physical exams, unless it's a clinically significant change, that it would not be recorded as an AE. 
But again, it's per your protocol. And if it's not listed in your protocol, then you would want to confirm this with your study team or your medical monitor. So um, this is just in general what I'm used to seeing. So when I'm looking at a lab report or an ECG result, I'm looking to ensure that everything on there matches the source in regards to the subject number, date of birth, all that stuff, and the study visit number and the study visit date. But when I'm actually looking at the result, if it's not within normal range or not normal, then I'm looking to see if the PI or medically qualified delegated sub-I, if they have noted if the abnormal result is clinically or not clinically significant. Usually you'll see CS or NCS noted, and then they'll sign and date. So on a lab report, usually the out-of-range lab values are flagged, and sometimes the PI or sub-I will note CS or NCS for those, and again, sign and date their review. So it's very important that they document if it's CS or NCS to ensure that we can confirm from there, are these AEs that need to be captured? Also, um, for vital signs, usually what I would do when I review vital signs in the source documentation the CRF completion guidelines usually would have the normal ranges of the different vital signs because if it was outside of that range, data management would query as well. But what I would do as a monitor, I would go through, I'd have the normal ranges next to me. So when I'm reviewing the vital signs at all the different study visits, I would compare that to the normal ranges that are listed in the CRF completion guidelines. And if it was outside normal range, then I would go ahead and query. I would go ahead and ask for a PI or delegated sub-I to assess if that abnormal range was clinically or not clinically significant. And then if it was clinically significant, I would go ahead and say, please confirm and capture as an adverse event. That way it was already in the process of being resolved. So again, if you have those good study coordinators that would already know what you're going to ask and would already have the PI and sub-I's assessing those, which is good. You, you want them to assess AEs in real time. So it's really good when it's happening and that you don't always have to ask that and, and have to have them reconfirm later. And during your review, if you happen to notice that the vital signs do not change and there's the same blood pressure, for example, at every single visit, then that's a whole nother issue altogether. And you would definitely want to discuss that with your lead or your project manager. However, the communication plan is for your study. So this leads to the next common audit finding of a lack of documentation of clinical significance of results by an investigator or in a timely manner. Every time that we review those lab reports, ECG results, not only are we looking, like I talked about, for that PI, sub-I, signature date, documenting their review, we're reviewing to see any abnormal results if they're clinically or not clinically significant, but we want to pay attention to that date of review. We need to know, are they reviewing these results, the safety information, in a timely manner? I remember covering a visit. I was helping out a study that they were having an upcoming interim data analysis. So they needed help covering visits for their particular study. And I went to a site where there was an issue that was noted by the site's usual assigned CRA. And the issue was that the lab reports were not reviewed in a timely manner by a PI or sub-I. Some of them were three months out. And that's, that's scary because this is subject safety. You know, so even at a regular doctor's office, I just got upset at a doctor's office, my brother-in-law's PCP, that he had lab work done two and a half months prior and they never contacted him about it. He had something on there that needed to be, he needed to be referred to a hematologist, a specialist, and they never contacted him. It must have slipped through the cracks. And if he wouldn't have contacted their office, then he would have never known. 
because they didn't even they I, I don't know what happened with his lab results just kind of slipped through the cracks. And what if he was the type of person that was like, well, I guess no news is good news and never would have known. That's scary enough with a PCP, a primary care provider, let alone think about the patients that are in these studies. These are studies with investigational product. This treatment is not even approved by the FDA yet. They're trusting that their safety is being protected. And so I'm just like, oh my goodness. So I can't imagine waiting three months to review lab reports. So that was actually an issue for this particular site. So I had reviewed that and I was reviewing the source documentation at the visit that I was covering. And I had noticed that the lab reports were signed on the same day as the study visit. And I already knew, I was like, well, that's impossible because the lab samples are collected on the day of the visit and then they're sent and shipped to the central lab. So there was no way that they would get a report with the results on the same day as the visit. And even more, even though I knew that was impossible, up at the top of the lab report, they also will list like the date the samples were received, the date of the report, which of course were dated after that signature date of the investigator. So because of that, you knew that that backdating had occurred. So it went from one extreme to the other. So it was, okay, they're taking three months to review this lab report. Well, now instead, since that was an issue, they went ahead and I guess backdated of a date they thought that we would want to see, I guess. So I had to discuss the issue, of course, with the PI. It wasn't him. I think it was a sub I. So I had to discuss the issue with him and re-educate that, yeah, for one, these need to be reviewed in a timely manner, but for real. And then always, always, always in research, you date with the current date when you're signing something. So of course, I also had to escalate this. The study team became aware and they escalated this as a quality issue at the site. So like I said, when you're reviewing, not only if the significance is being assessed by an investigator and also that they're reviewing it, you're seeing the signature and date, also pay attention to that date of review if they're reviewing things within a timely manner. And that goes for safety reports and the reg binder and any type of safety information. And pay attention to the dates that are on a document. So for example, like with this lab report, you see the date the samples are received, you see the date of the report. So if it dates before that, then that's a clue of backdating. I was also on a study where there had to be certified raters on the study because they were doing rating scales for an AD study. And what they would do is they'd have to enter the information into a website, it calculated the score, and they printed that out and filed that in the source. And when you print something off a computer, it usually will list the date that it was printed. And that was something else that was done. It was signed on the date of the visit, but you can tell it was printed two days later. So things like that, just always keep aware of. Like I said, as CRAs, we're always like private investigators at the site, just piecing everything together like a puzzle and also making sure things are consistent, compliant, and make total sense, really. Another common audit finding is lack of documentation of adverse event assessment by an investigator. So like we talked about, it's so important that everyone that is delegated something or a task to do on a study is medically qualified to do so. And including the PI. There's some studies I've been on that a PI was a psych D. So they weren't an MD, they weren't a DO. Sometimes on a study, there may be a PI that's a PhD. So always pay attention to that because if that's the case, they're not medically qualified to review labs or review ECGs, for example. So they will need to have a sub-I 
that's medically qualified to do so, and they'll need to be delegated to do those tasks. So with sites that have source worksheets, and they may have an AE log, for example, and they'll have each AE listed line by line. So it'll have like the start date, the stop date, if it's ongoing or not, the severity or intensity, it'll have if it's qualified as an SAE or not. Also, if it what was any treatment required? Was there any action taken with the investigational product? And also if it was related to the study drug or not. So how in the source then we need to know how we can confirm as monitors did a PI or a medically qualified sub-I how do we know that they've assessed it? Most sites will have a column at the end where it'll say like initial and dated by a PI or sub-I, and you'll see on every line next to every AE where a PI is initial and dated next to each one. So that way they've assessed it also. They're the ones who determine the intensity. They're the ones who determine if it was related to study drug or not, which is very important that we see. And like I mentioned earlier, this also is the same for review of lab reports, ECGs, performing physical exams, and even final sign-off that a subject is eligible to randomize. We want to pay close attention when reviewing that delegation log and who is delegated to tasks that will require medically qualified individuals to perform. So when I'm doing that first review of the delegation log, I definitely want to nip that in the bud right away if I see that, okay, these people have been delegated tasks, say maybe a coordinator to review lab reports or even assess AEs, I want to go ahead and nip that in the bud. I want to go ahead and discuss that with the site that it has to be a medically qualified PI or sub-I um, to do these tasks. They'll go ahead and correct the log and just make sure that they have the correct appropriate people performing these tasks. They have to be qualified and they have to be trained appropriately to perform any tasks in the study. Another audit finding is the failure to follow reporting requirements. This is reviewed in detail with sites at the SIV or site initiation visit. It's important that a site knows not only when an event is to be reported, but how and where. Like, is it going to be electronic reporting? Is it going to be via phone? Is it going to be fax? So SAEs, for example, these are serious adverse events. And these are AEs that result in death. Life-threatening requires inpatient hospitalization or prolongation of an existing hospitalization, results in a persistent or significant disability incapacity, or is a congenital anomaly or birth defect. So these are required to be reported within 24 hours that a site becomes aware of the event. Once they become aware, the clock starts ticking. So for example, I was on a study where SAEs were to be completed on an SAE report form, and then it was submitted to the safety group. And we would review this information in detail at the SIV, but also even in between visits, because we had a lot of updates to the safety reporting, even had a new vendor on the study. So we reviewed the SAE reporting requirements, as well as adverse events of special interest, AESI reporting requirements, a lot with the site. So anyway, I was at a visit, I was reviewing the regulatory binder, I'd already reviewed, reviewed if I could talk, <laughs> the source, and I was reviewing the regulatory binder, and I noticed that an SAE was submitted to the IRB. And I was like, there was no SAE report when I was reviewing the source, so I was a little confused. So I followed up with the site, and they actually must have forgotten our reporting requirements, because on another study that they had, if they entered the event in the CRF and clicked that it was an SAE, that automatically went to the safety group on, the, on that particular study. But that's not how our study worked. So it ended up that for our study, yes, it was reported to the IRB, but it 
was unreported. It was not reported to our safety group. So I had to re-educate them again, (laughs) had to re-educate them on the safety reporting requirements for our study. And of course, it actually, I want to say it was a deviation because it was an SAE that was not reported within reporting guidelines. So in that case, we re-educated them. I had to let the medical monitor know of the unreported SAE as well as the study team of the issue. And I had to ensure that the site submitted that SAE report while I was there on site so we can make sure it was done, it was handled. So like I mentioned earlier, it's so important that sites are aware of all the safety reporting requirements, definitions, timelines, everything, that they're very aware, very well trained, and you want to set that standard at the SIV as well as any issues that you notice during the visits, you want to make sure to re-educate and to document that training as well. Another example where an SAE wasn't reported within those reporting requirements is this particular site had source worksheets and they also provided paper charts. So I was reviewing the paper charts, the medical records, and I had noticed that a patient came in and saw one of the physicians from the private practice and they had mentioned that they had went to the hospital in between visits. And of course, for research, you're like, oh my gosh, that's an SAE. Oh my goodness. But that particular physician didn't realize that patient was in a research study and didn't tell the research team that the subject had been in the hospital. So the site definitely had to come up with a whole new procedure in which it was clearly flagged, documented in a patient's chart if they were part of a research study. So because these were paper charts, I remember they put in like big, bright papers flagging and letting all the physicians know in that private practice that this patient was in a research study and with anything to contact the research team. So they did have to come up with that whole new procedure in order to prevent that from happening again in the future. And lastly, there is also a common audit finding regarding conflict between the CRFs and the source documentation. Like, for example, there may be an AE noted in the medical record, but not on the CRF. And sometimes the event may be discrepant. The event name may be discrepant between the two or the dates, for example. So there may be things that you have to query the discrepant information between the source and the CRF. But also, when you have an SAE report, you want to review that in its entirety, in complete detail, and make sure all that information is consistent with this other source documentation. And usually with an SAE report, after that initial one is submitted, there's usually a follow-up one that will require hospital medical records and a discharge summary. So once the site obtains all this information, they're going to complete a follow-up SAE report. And again, you want to review that follow-up SAE report as well as all those records attached. You want to, again, review it, confirm it that everything is consistent with all the other source that you've been reviewing, because sometimes there can be discrepant information. Usually the most it would happen for me in my experience was with like medical history or maybe concomitant medications. But I did have a time, you won't believe this, but I did have a time where I was reviewing hospital medical records and I was on a vaccine study. But when I was reviewing the medical records from the hospital, I happened to notice that it said the subject was participating in a diabetic research study. And I was like, what? I was like, this is, wait a minute, is this a typo? You know, and then I had noticed that it listed for any questions on the study and it listed a coordinator name, which was not someone at that particular site I was at. So I'm like, oh man, oh my goodness. So I'm talking to the coordinator and of course she followed up on it and come to find out the patient was in two different research studies. And you will notice that in a lot of exclusion criteria, one of the exclusion criteria is that a subject cannot be in another study, especially with investigational product, but sometimes they'll just say studies 
period. It just depends. But a lot of the exclusion criteria will say they cannot have participated in another research study within, say, 30 days of starting this one. And they can't be in one, obviously, at the same time either. So it definitely was an issue. And the coordinator had to follow up. We had to escalate it. So you never know what you're going to find. And you just want to review everything with a fine tooth comb. And like I mentioned last week, our obligation is subject safety and data integrity. Therefore, this is definitely another important area for sure. We want to ensure that the FDA is basing all their decisions on quality data. And of course, we want to ensure that the subjects are safe. I hope you found this information helpful. And if you like what you hear, hit subscribe and check out my free resources at thecrahelper.com. Thank you again. And I pray you have a great day. I look forward to our time next week. Until next time.